Well, let me add my Merry Christmas wishes to you. And uh, this morning, I want to start with the text in the beginning of Matthew. It's in chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in this brief summary of the Christmas story, we're told of two names that would be given to the Christ or the Messiah that the Jews were told would come into the world. And so this is where we find out he will be named Jesus. And Jesus means, you may not have known this, the the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And the second name, Christmas name, we call this the Christmas name of Jesus, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the first name was not an uncommon name. Uh, back then. And, and even in the, he, the Hebrew version of the Greek name, Jesus was Joshua. And so Joshua and Jesus, those were common names. However, this time it was a bold move to name him Jesus. Not because it was an uncommon name and it wasn't used for children, but because of why he was getting it. He was getting it because, we're told here, he would save his people from sins, from their sins. So the Lord saves so this was a bold move. Every time Mary and Martha, I mean Mary and Martha, Mary and Joseph were asked, hey, why'd you name him Jesus? They're, this is the story they got to tell because <clears throat> he will save us from our sins. That's, that's why we named him that. And so this was bold. And the second name was not common and it's less cloudy on, uh, on, in its offensiveness, Okay. To call someone Emmanuel would be directly to name them God. It means God with us. So imagine uh, mom going out and saying, God with us, come on in for dinner. The children knocking on the door saying, hey, God with us, want to come out and play? Later when he had these disciples, hey, God with us, should we go to Jerusalem for the Passover? This would have been not just bold, it would have been at a minimum irreverent, at a, at a maximum, and with most Jews, it would have been sinfully blasphemous. And it was such a bold, ridiculous thing to say when Matthew recorded this here, when he recorded Jesus has the name Emmanuel. It's so bold, so ridiculous. It is so, I mean, the, the amount of critique you're going to get as an author of this book, okay, to, to say that this child was named God with us. The amount of critique and pushback that you would get, uh, it, it would be so ridiculous to expect people to believe that, that the only reason I can think why anyone would suggest it is 
is because they had to. And the only reason I can think why anyone would have to say that is because they believed down to their core that it was true. That they believed that God was present with them. So we've been in what I consider to, along with Doyle, to be a beautiful teaching series that we've entitled Unburdened, which we all need after these last couple of years. And so uh, we've been considering the great invitation of Jesus as he expressed it in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and I will, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the set of promises contained in that we've been looking at and considering, the promise that Jesus will lighten our heavy loads, that he will ease some of the strain so that we will experience the much-needed rest, relief that our souls are in so desperate need of. And so we've been examining, not just this verse, but what is it about the gospel? What is it about the invitation to follow Jesus that, that really does that? That really lifts the load, right? That, that changes, that is an experienceable part of the gospel. That as we walk this life that is full of pandemics and difficulties and death and sickness and, and financial struggles and all kinds of things, What is it about the gospel? What is it about our followership of Jesus that actually and experienceably, I keep making up words with that, allows us to feel a little lighter, to have some rest for our souls? How does Jesus, how does God make good on those promises and that invitation? So we've been looking at different categories. And this week, I wanted to look at a category that conveniently for me is an aspect of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that we celebrate every Christmas. And that is God's presence with us. It's part of the deal. Part of this deal in following Jesus is God's presence with us. That's a part of the gospel. Now, you you don't need me to say this, but I will just to highlight it. Presence is powerful. Is it not? Real presence. And, And let's just... Set aside the presence of God for a minute. Presence just among us mortals is powerful. We care about it instinctively. We value it without even trying. We desire it. We want it. Borderline, I think we can go as far as we instinctively know we need it. We need the presence of people. This is why we invite people out to lunch. I mean, we can sustain ourselves with food without anyone present, but why do we invite people to go with us? This is why we invite people over for dinner. It's why we invite people over for for games. It's why we might get our feelings hurt when we're not invited over. That all stems from this concept that we desire presence. We know presence is powerful. This is why we thank people for attending the weddings or the funerals of our loved ones. It's always, it's always mentioned. I haven't been to one. Just on behalf of the family, I want to thank you for your presence. It's why marriage is very far. It's very far, despite our society's sometimes pressure to do so. It is far from being some outdated institution, right? And that's because it embedded in us is the desire to meet that need Permanently, we want someone present always 
That's deep down in there. I don't think it will ever go away. The idea of marriage. It's why death hurts at all. It's why death hurts. Because that loss of presence does something. Presence is powerful. And even when it's just a human being offering to you. There was a, as I was studying for this, I ran across this interesting thing. It was a lady, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right. A woman named Marina Abramovic. She's Serbian and she's an artist and a philanthropist and an author and a filmmaker. But back in 2010, she was 63 years old in 2010. She came to New York and she did what was called a performance at the Museum of Modern Art there in New York City. And it was called The Artist is Present. And all it entailed was her sitting in a very simple chair with a very humble table and an empty chair on the other side. And all this was, it involved her simply sitting there while people took turns sitting in that empty chair. And then she would raise her eyes and she would offer her gaze and her full presence with a fellow human being. That was it. That was her whole thing. But what happened was unexpected and I think very revealing. From the moment the exhibit opened, the chair was never empty. In fact, there were long lines of people who just wanted this experience to sit with another human being and be seen. No words were exchanged. She was literally just offering her presence. Now get this. Now, first of all, she was quoted as saying, nobody could imagine that anybody would take the time to sit and just engage in a mutual gaze with me. She sat there for three months, eight hours a day, and the chair was never empty. For three months, for eight hours a day, and the chair was never empty. She ended up Offering that gaze and her presence to 1,541 people. There's a documentary made about it. You can look it up. It's, it's free to watch. It's, it's called The Artist is Present. And in it, several of the people who were in it were interviewed. And they said it was such a transforming experience. One man said he went back in that three-month period 21 times just to experience being fully engaged with someone's presence again. This is so interesting. Some broke down crying while they sat there in her presence. Some tattooed their bodies to mark the experience. They never wanted to forget what presence can do and felt like. Some literally were recorded as saying that was the moment they met God. That they met God when they were the full undivided attention and presence of another human being. She knew it would be interesting and hopefully impactful, but this artist... She said, it was a complete surprise, this enormous need of humans to actually have contact. Presence is powerful, even when it's just a human being offering it to you. So, imagine. Imagine what kind of power might be available if God actually offers his full presence, his gaze to you. If God truly was a God that was near and not far away, not absent, think about that. There's a story 
early in our Bible, it's in Genesis 16, that it doesn't do a lot of overt teaching, but the story contains uh, such a powerful image of this idea of God and introduces us to God early on as a God of presence. And really, the whole Bible does that, right? The whole Bible is a message of God with us. I mean, from the beginning in his garden all the way to the end in his city, okay? It is about God walking intimately with Adam and Eve and then everything in between and it all concluding with the city of God coming down and the presence of God being with his people. That's what distinguishes our religion, the Christian religion, from every other religion. Every other religion is people trying to make it to God's presence. Ours is the only one where it's God wanting, desiring to come down into ours. It's a beautiful story, unbelievable story. So this, this little story, however, and they're dotted all through Scripture. I could have put, picked a bunch, but it's the story of a woman named Hagar. She was an Egyptian woman, and she was the handmaiden of a famous woman in the Bible, Sarah. She was married to Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah, you know, they're the father and mother of the Jewish faith. And they were given a promise by God that they would have a son. But they're getting up there in years. And so Sarah's getting a little nervous that maybe God isn't going to make good on the promise. And she's thinking maybe he's going to deliver it through a culturally rel- a cultural way that babies are sometimes given to family. So she sends her handmaiden into her husband for him to impregnate her. And that was Hagar. And she did get pregnant. And Long story short, she got very jealous as she saw that baby growing in the womb. And she went to her husband and lodged her complaint. With Abraham's blessing, Sarah started mistreating Hagar. And it must have been bad because Hagar, who would be like the picture of powerlessness in this culture, she's a, she would be alone, she'd be pregnant, she has no husband. She left she left the household. Even when she, was, she just did what her boss told her to do. She was being so mistreated that she left. So she was in a desperate situation. It's a picture of loneliness and lostness. And so it's in Genesis 16 that we hear that God shows up. Starting in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Isn't that sweet? Hagar didn't find the Lord, the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I thought this was so cool. He probably knows, okay, but, but he's communicating something to her. He's finding her and then he's saying, and this is a question y'all have heard me ask you when you want to talk to me. I'll say, okay, tell me everything. Right? I have you sit down and say, okay, tell me everything. What's going on? That's, I feel like that's what he's saying here. He's like, tell me, where have you come from? Where are you going? Just give me the whole thing from your perspective. I, I want you to know I can hear you, and I understand. I've got you. And so after she explains her plight, which you know, God tells her what to do next, okay? And he does that. That's not important to what I'm wanting to say. Here's her reaction. In verse 13, she says, she gave the name, this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You think this wasn't an impactful moment in her life as she sat across the table from a God who offered her his full presence? 
that she never forgot this moment. I bet she was never the same. I wonder if she tattooed the moment to remember because she'd never want to forget what was given to her and who God is. And it goes on to say she did have that child, a son named Ishmael. You know what Ishmael means? The God who hears me. So we're given this picture all through scripture, but right here and all the way to Jesus that your God is a God who sees you. Your God is a God who hears you. Your God is a God who is with you. So the big question for today, is that your experience? Like, is that an experienceable part of your followership of Jesus? Is that something you enjoy? Do you have those moments that have marked you, that have changed you, that have transformed you, where you have met God, where you have seen the one who sees you? Is that a part of the gospel of Jesus that you enjoy? You know, even before COVID came along and our society like institutionalized it and promoted it, our experience of disconnection with people was already epidemic, right? It was already epidemic. And that sense of disconnection that we can have with people often bleeds into our faith. And we, we end up talking about this idea that we feel like God's absent from our lives or he's not near, especially when we're in trouble like Hagar was. If he's the God who sees and hears and is with us, then I wonder, I wonder if it's actually us that are absent from him. The chair has been pulled up. He is sitting there across the table. But we don't go sit in the seat. We're too busy for presence. So no wonder when we need it, we wonder where it is. The good news is there's a solution if the answer to the question of do you experience the presence of God, there's a solution to your lack of experiencing that. There is something that, you know, we all long, is there anything I can do, right? Anything I can do and anything that I can do, right? Something that's in my control, something that's in my competence and ability. Is there something, and there is, there is something that you can do And we hear and see it all through scripture to increase your experience of the Christmas name of Jesus, God with us. And in my experience, in my observation, the more we do this one thing, the more we experience the presence of God. You want to know what it is? You know what it is that you got to give to God in order to receive the experience, to sit at that table and accept his offer? It's your attention. (laughs) There's nothing magical about it. It's your attention that he's after. And it is your attention that makes you experience the presence that's already there. It is your attentiveness to God. I mean, there's there's so many verses that I could have used, but I'm plucking one out of Jeremiah because it's just such a powerful way to say it. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I, I really kind of meditated on this a little bit yesterday. And I, that second part, I almost felt like God was impressing on me that he's pounding his desk saying, you will be found by me. Like, I will make that happen. 
It will, I am so determined for you to feel seen and heard and be accompanied by me that you will, I will do everything I can. And in the Christmas story, he most certainly did. He came all the way from heaven to earth to be with us, and he's not done. Do you, I guess we need to ask, seek him with all your heart? Do you ever seek him with all your heart? And right now, you set aside some time to come together with some fellow seekers and worship him. At any one-minute interval of this worship service, can you look back and go, without distraction, I was fully giving my attention to God. Can you think of the last time you fully gave your attention to God? Can you think of the last time that you fully gave your attention to anything? We live in a world that is so full of distraction. Distraction is so our normal that we don't even know how to give our full attention to something until it comes down and grabs us like trouble and just takes over. And so it's so intense, it just takes over. Isn't it interesting that when trouble comes and, and makes everything else that we're distracted by, pushes it out of our brain and all we do, that God's not there. And we wonder where he is. We wonder where he is. Do you seek anything with all of your heart, let alone God, the one thing worthy of it, with the most magnificent payoff? It's in our time of need that we, like I've already mentioned, complain that we don't know where God is. And it's like the psalmist in Psalm 10.1. He says this. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist, we can relate to that, right? Well, the rest of the psalm doesn't like go in that theme. It's almost like as if God's, the psalmist is answering his own question. And down in verse 4, it says this. In his pride, not talking about God, talking about the person wishing they had God's presence. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Guilty. Guilty. It's like God says, why do I stand far off? Why, why do I hide from you in times of trouble? I don't. I don't. You have no room for me. In your thoughts. In your attention span. I sit at the chair. I am waiting for you to sit at it. I long to give you everything that I am. How about your thoughts? Is there room for God? You know, most churches, well, maybe all Christian churches and all traditions and denominations have what are called sacraments, okay? And that's just sacred acts, that things that you do as a religious community that are sacred, that you wouldn't do unless you were symbolizing some greater, more transcendent kingdom truth. And so I think all Christian traditions have the, sa- the sacrament of, it's called communion, or it's called the Eucharist, or it's sometimes called the Lord's Supper. It involves taking some bread and remembering the body of Christ, which this was an interesting connection for me, which is the Emmanuel name of Jesus, right? He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we remember with the bread. And then it takes, we have a cup, which is, represents his blood, which washes of our sin, which is the Jesus name of our Savior, right? He will save us from our sin. It goes all the way from Christmas to right to right now in the sacrament. 
So we're going to participate in that. Historically, Christians have debated. It's been like a centuries-long debate. on every, All Christian religions believe that Christ is somehow present in that Lord's Supper, his body and his blood. Wouldn't call it that otherwise. But there's been a debate on how his presence is in that that cup and in that bread is it is it literal does it transform into his actual body is it symbolic is it you know metaphorical there's all these debates historically but i think our culture has shifted to a new debate that we need to ask how present are you when you take the sacrament not how present is jesus and how is he present but how present are you so we're gonna practice today for christmas We're going to practice. We're going to finish together. Seeing if it's true. Seeing if Jeremiah is true. Will we find him when we seek him with all our hearts? So that you can look back at lunch today and go, you know, there was a few minutes where I worked really hard against the culture and against my conditioning and I gave my full attention to God. I sat at that table with him and I fellowshiped with him around that table. That's what I want us to do. So we're going to begin because this is an individual kind of thing, but it's also a communal thing. He always says, do this whenever you come together. When you come together, do this in remembrance of me. And so I'm going to ask Joel to come up, and he's going to just get our communal thoughts together, and we're going to sing about his presence, sing those truths together, and then I'll come up and pray, and we'll, we'll practice. We'll practice the presence of God. Church, one of the most restful, relieving, burden-lifting truths of the gospel is that God is with you. That, I mean, it's really kind of my answer for everything is, well, God, as long as you're with me, I can take it. As long as you're with me, I can handle it. And it's, it's one of the most relieving, restful realities of the gospel. So your experience of that is directly related to your attentiveness to him. So just want to encourage you as you turn to the new year, make a decision. This, this, maybe this is the year. Of all your years, you've never made this, made a year, your year. I'm going to give that a shot. I'm going to faithfully and persistently, not perfectly, maybe not even perfectly consistently, but this year, I'm going to give you more attention than I have ever given you ever in the past. I'm sorry, I just saw some good friends. Presence, it's important. It affects us. <laughs> and so I want to encourage you to do that and do it with us. If you're here local and you're our guest, we'd love for you to be here with us. I'm going to ask our elders. We do this every week. Our elders and our ministers and their spouses, they, they just move around this room in case you're needing a tangible touch today. You know, it's kind of mysterious. It's real. It's practical, but it's a little bit different being touched by God, being in his presence. So, so one of the ways God gives us his presence is through the church. And, and so these are leaders in this church that uh, put themselves out there to be ambassadors. We're all ambassadors of God's presence. But if you need a touch today, more tangible touch, please come to any of us as we declare in song, and we're going to declare it to each other, God's faithful presence. Merry Christmas, church. Merry Christmas.